What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From the Bloomberg Interactive Burgers Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Monday, June 26th. Coming up today... Vladimir Putin faces the biggest challenge to his leadership in Russia in nearly a quarter century. The world watches for what's next after Putin's apparent deal with the Wagner Group. Global team coverage just ahead. One of the biggest bears on Wall Street sees more pain ahead. And we speak with Elon Musk about his new plans for SpaceX. Some very important rulings are expected this week from the U.S. Supreme Court, plus New York City. City puts on its annual Pride Parade. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stash, Aaron Sports. The Yankees rallied to beat Texas. The Mets blew a late lead, lost in Philadelphia. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. Karen, we'll get back to the markets in a minute, but we begin with the latest from Russia and the biggest challenge to Vladimir Putin's grip on power in nearly a quarter century. Moscow has lifted anti-terror measures that went in place over the weekend after the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, halted his advance on the Russian capital. The Kremlin says it made a deal to end Prigozhin's mutiny brokered by the president of Belarus. But former UK Defense Secretary Philip Hamm and says this might not be the end of the rebellion. Mr. Prigozhin has been um, vocal in his calls for changes at the top of the Russian defense ministry, the Russian military. Um, We will only find out over time whether um, any changes are going to be made. We don't know what the deal is that's been done. Former British Defense Secretary Philip Hammond tells Bloomberg it is difficult to imagine Putin coming out stronger from this weekend's events. Well, Nathan, there's not been much public reaction out of the Kremlin since the deal was brokered. Bloomberg's Greg Sullivan begins our global team coverage from Budapest. After the deal was announced and confirmed by the Kremlin, we have seen a mostly silent Kremlin since then. Um, We have not seen President Vladimir Putin publicly since he gave his Saturday TV address, uh, in which he called the Wagner Group's actions treasonous. Even Prigozhin himself, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the mercenary group, the Wagner Group, he's often boisterous in public, and he has been largely out of public view since then as well, leaving a calm that leaves a certain nervousness, uh, unsettledness from the events over the weekend, and room for focusing on the questions of what does it mean, what are the implications of what transpired over the weekend, and that seems to be where the focus is now. And Bloomberg's Greg Sullivan reports one Kremlin figure has made an appearance since the weekend mutiny. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu was seen inspecting troops in Ukraine today. Shoigu has been the focus of Yevgeny Prigozhin's harshest criticism. And Karen, we have been hearing reaction from the White House over this weekend's events. Amy Morris continues our team coverage from the Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told ABC's This Week the rebellion showed cracks in Putin's authority. A direct challenge surfacing very publicly uh, the notion that this war, this aggression by Russia, 
was being pursued under false pretenses, the notion that Ukraine or NATO somehow presented a threat to Russia that it had to deal with militarily. That's now much more out in the open than it's, uh, than it's been. Secretary of State Blinken says the uprising is a distraction that can help Ukraine. Meanwhile, he says the U.S. is in contact with Russian officials about the safety of U.S. personnel and citizens in the region. In Washington, I'm Amy Morris, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Amy, thank you. Well, the ruble hit its weakest level in 15 months following the events, but overall, market reaction has been pretty muted. Bloomberg's Valerie Titel continues our team coverage from London. You'd expect if there was a real threat of some instability in Russia, a civil war in Russia that would really impact the euro and not not just the euro, but other surrounding countries to Russia. So I'm thinking Poland, Czech, Hungary, but all of those currencies are still holding up pretty well today. And even in the commodity space, you know, there's not a huge risk off bid when it comes to gold. It's up slightly, but not enough really to call it a risk off move. And then oil, if uh, if we did have an unrest on our hands, you'd expect oil to shoot way higher. And Bloomberg's Valerie Titel reporting. We're checking oil right now. NYMEX crude oil, little changed at $69.12 a barrel. Brent also little changed at $73.89. As for U.S. futures, Karen, they're a bit lower this morning following the S&P 500's worst week since March. And one of the biggest bears on Wall Street says there could be more pain ahead. Morgan Stanley's Michael Wilson expects the benchmark index to end this year at 3900 That's about 10% below Friday's close before rising to 4200 in the second quarter of next year. Wilson says, quote, the headwinds significantly outweigh the tailwinds, and we believe risks for a major correction have rarely been higher. And Nathan, shares of Tesla are down more than 2% in early trading. The automaker was downgraded to neutral from buy at Goldman Sachs. Analysts at the firm cited the recent run-up in the stock, as well as a difficult pricing environment for new vehicles. Meanwhile, in a wide-ranging interview with Bloomberg, Tesla CEO Elon Musk says SpaceX has made lots of changes to Starship following the vehicle's first test launch in April, which failed to reach orbit. Musk spoke with Bloomberg senior reporter Ashley Vance in a Twitter Spaces interview. There are really a tremendous number of changes uh, between the last uh, Starship flight and this one. But, I mean, well over a thousand. So I, I think the probability of this this next uh, flight working is, uh, you know, getting to orbit is much higher than the last one. Elon Musk rates at a 60% chance SpaceX reaches orbit. Well, Nathan, after three pandemic summers, a record number of Americans will hit the highway this July 4th weekend. AAA predicts more than 43 million motorists will drive 50 miles or more from their homes this Independence Day weekend. That's 4% more than in 2019 and would mark a new record. AAA says throw in travel by planes, buses, cruise ships and trains and holiday travel will hit an all-time high of 50.7 million Americans during that weekend. Now it's time to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. The Supreme Court is preparing to unveil its decisions in some big cases. The High Court has just 10 opinions left to release over the next week before the justices begin their summer break. Some of the most contentious issues the court has wrestled with this term include affirmative action, student loans, and gay rights. More severe weather is moving east today after yet another deadly tornado outbreak. At least one death was reported in Martin County, Indiana. Another twister left behind a path of destruction yesterday in Bargersville, Indiana. Fire Chief Eric Funkhauser. We're probably looking at, right now, at least 75 homes with moderate Um, to severe damage from the tornado being on the ground. 
Chief Funkhauser says the twister cut a three-mile path through Johnson County. The Coast Guard has now officially convened a Marine Board of Investigation, or MBI, into the loss of the Titan submersible. The accident killed all five people aboard on their way to the wreckage of the Titanic. Captain Jason Neubauer is the Coast Guard Chief Investigator. The MBI is also responsible for accountability aspects of the incident and it can make recommendations to the proper authorities to pursue civil or criminal sanctions. Captain Neubauer says for now the priority of the investigation is to recover items from the ocean floor. Pride parades took place across the country Sunday, including the nation's largest in New York City. Among the celebrities present for the 53rd Pride Parade in New York, comedian and activist Leah Delaria, the 65-year-old promoted her affiliation with the organization God's Love We Deliver. It began 38 years ago during the AIDS epidemic, delivering meals to those sick and dying of AIDS. Today, Delaria says they'll help anyone who is in need. It started in 1985. It was mostly for uh, the AIDS community. But now it's just anybody who has needs food, can't, doesn't have access to food, doesn't have access to the money to have food, and they serve 13,000 meals a day. The two-mile parade route along Fifth Avenue featured about 100,000 parade participants and an estimated 1 million spectators. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr, and this is Bloomberg Nathan. Thank you, Michael. Time for the Bloomberg Sports Update with John Stashauer. All right, Nathan. Key eighth innings for the Yankees and Mets. Good one for the Yanks at the stadium. They had trail Texas 3-0. It was 3-2. Yanks had two on. Swung on and lined to left center field. That's a base hit over the head of Duran going to the wall. Volpe scores. Cabrera scores. It is a two-run double off the bat of Harrison Bader. And the Yankees take a 4-3 lead. On WFAN, they won 5-3 in a day where their ace, Garrett Cole, did not have his best stuff. Failed to finish the fifth inning. The bullpen again, solid with four and a third scoreless innings. Yanks off tonight. Start a road trip tomorrow at lowly Oakland. The A's are 20-60. and 60. They are flirting with a record similar to what the Mets had in 1962. These Mets... Looked like the 1962 team. Bottom of the eighth inning in Philadelphia. The Phil scored four times. They had one hit. But the Mets issued three walks, had an error, and the tying and go-ahead runs both came in on consecutive hit batsmen. Phillies won 7-6. The Mets have lost 15 of their last 20. They host Milwaukee tonight. Also tonight, they'll decide the College World Series in Omaha. LSU against Florida, who stayed alive by winning 24-4. Gators had 23 hits, hit six home runs. They scored four or more runs in four different innings. Wimbledon starts tomorrow. Carlos Alcaraz just won the tune-up in England. He's now won tournaments this year on three surfaces. This was his first ever on grass. The 20-year-old Alcaraz, the youngest top seed at Wimbledon since Boris Becker in the 1980s. Travelers Golf near Hartford won by Keegan Bradley. Finished 23 under par, won by three. The women's PGA at Baltusrol in New Jersey won by Rooney Yin, a 20-year-old. In China, John Stashauer, Bloomberg Sports. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. The world is watching to see what comes next following the biggest challenge to Russian President Vladimir Putin's leadership in nearly a quarter century. The mercenary Wagner Group's weekend march to Moscow has ended nearly as soon as it began after a deal was reached between the Kremlin and Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, an agreement brokered by the president of Belarus. For the latest, we're joined by Bloomberg News executive editor for international government, Rosalind Matheson. Roz, it's good to speak with you this morning following so much heated rhetoric between Prigozhin and Putin over the weekend and those images of the convoys headed to Moscow. Now we enter what seems to be a period of uncertainty here. Well, that's right. Even though uh, the Wagner mercenary chief, uh, Prigozhin, turned his troops around, uh, seemingly diffusing this moment, there's a lot we still don't know. We don't even know where Prigozhin is right now. Is, his, is he on his way to Belarus? Is he going to take the bulk of his forces with him? What would he do if and when he got there? Uh, and also uh, Vladimir Putin. We've not heard from him since Saturday when he came out to denounce this mutiny. Uh, he's not been seen of either. What we have seen is footage of the Russian defence minister, who's been the focal point of, of a lot of this, footage of him showing up inside Ukraine, meeting Russian troops today. Uh, We don't know exactly when that happened, but the footage is airing on Russian state media this morning. And and of course, he's been the one uh, that the Wagner group has criticised the most and demanded his removal for sort of failures by the Russian troops on the ground inside Ukraine. Uh, But of the two main protagonists, we still don't know anything much since yesterday. Uh, We don't know where Putin is. Um, He hasn't commented publicly and neither has Prigozhin. It is interesting to see that the first image of a Russian figure to come out of Russian state media is the defense minister and that footage of him inspecting the troops in Ukraine. What kind of message does that signal that the Kremlin is trying to send out here? Well, very much what they seem to be doing is trying to send the message that everything's back to normal um, and that, you know, Russia's very focused on its war inside Ukraine. Uh, the minister is there seeing the troops and rallying them on. They're pushing back against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, this is over. Um, so you see sort of the streets of Moscow back to normal, quite quiet. Uh, all the roadblocks have been removed. They're saying markets are open and trading and so on. And so really the sort of the sense that they're pushing through state media um, is that there's nothing to see here. This moment happened, it's it's finished, and let's move on. The reality of that, of course, is far less clear. There's got to be further ramifications from this moment. I mean, this was the most overt public challenge that we've seen so far uh, to the authority of the Russian president um, in decades uh, inside Russia. And so surely there's got to be further fallout from that. What's the sense at this point that we have about Russian uh people's support, either for President Putin at this point or for Yevgeny Prigozhin? 
Well, we do know that Prigozhin does have a body of support. And certainly his men seem to be very loyal to him and quite highly organised. Uh, but also Vladimir Putin has worked very hard to denude the political opposition in Russia uh, in the years leading up to this invasion and certainly keeping quite a, cl- a close control over the Russian media um, and so sort of managing that message. There, there's no sense of sort of great unrest coming from this moment immediately or people coming out onto the streets. Um, and we do know that within Russia there is at least some measure of support for the war in Ukraine or at least resignation about it amongst ordinary Russian people. The question really is, like, as Re- Vladimir Putin heads towards an election next year, for example, do do the elites start to discuss amongst themselves, you know, potential to sort of have a contender against him or, or, or the possibility of sort of life without Putin in charge? Um, and that's really where the debate is probably going to start, not at the ordinary sort of street level, but amongst the elites. And of course, this is coming as Ukraine is mounting this counteroffensive in the springtime uh, against Russia. Uh, this has to be something that the Ukrainians feel like they can take advantage of this period of uncertainty and potential turmoil in Russia. Well, certainly uh, that could be the case. And, and they're obviously pushing their counteroffensive hard at the moment. I mean, what we can see is that there are still Wagner troops inside Ukraine. The question is, are they going to keep fighting for Russia? Are they going to transfer over and just operate under the umbrella of the Russian military? Are they going to leave entirely? Because they've been really carrying the can on a lot of the fighting in the key areas because they're more organised um, and well-structured, frankly, than the Russian military. So if they go, uh, that would, how does that affect the conflict on the ground? Does that give the advantage uh, to the Ukrainians in this moment? Certainly they would be hoping that that's the case, but it's still too early to say. Bloomberg's Rosalind Matheson, thanks for being with us this morning, our executive editor for international government as we continue to follow developments following the weekend mutiny in Russia. We want to turn our attention now to the markets as we get ready for the final trading week of the first half. We're joined live now by Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Obviously, geopolitics is now in focus. Uh, Lori, how much of a focus should it be for investors at this point? Well, thanks for having me, Nathan. And look, I think that what's interesting about the timing of this episode is that it comes when it really seems like the stock market was searching for new narratives. I think post the debt ceiling, the Fed has really struggled to regain the focus with a lot of equity investors. And so now geopolitics has really taken center stage. I think that, you know, one of the things my uh, colleague in commodity strategy, Helena Croft, has pointed out is that there is just so much we don't know right now. And you alluded to the uncertainty earlier. We're not seeing a big reaction in markets so far, whether we're looking at futures or commodities. I think that makes sense. I think the market knows what it doesn't know, and we have to let this situation unfold. Is this a kind of a situation that the market can look past? I mean, we've had a lot of uncertainty around uh, monetary policy and so much else for this market this year. So what, what's also interesting about the timing of this episode is that sentiment gauges, whether you're looking at the CFTC data on asset manager positioning in S&P 500 futures, or if you're looking at the AAII survey on net bullishness, those indicators are not technically stretched yet at a point that would cause us to be concerned about a short-term pullback in markets. But their recovery has been something that's highlighting that this recovery, this rally in stocks has had farther to go. And they're starting to look late innings right now, if I could use a baseball analogy. Um, so I think that it's happening at just a very interesting time when sentiment is perhaps not precarious yet in terms of being stretched. 
but we could see how it could get there pretty fast. So if markets do sort of march through this in the short term, um, we could get to, you know, sort of a, a more dire signal, I guess is the way to put it in those sentiment indicators at a time that we're getting more clarity. I think it's very, very hard to make any big investable conclusions from this right now. But at the margin, I would say this feels like something that should contribute to nervousness at a time when stocks are seasonally under pressure anyway, something investors are very well aware of. And of course, we are heading into the second half here, uh, coming off the worst week for stocks since March, as far as the S&P 500 goes. Have we topped out as far as the rally goes, do you think? So it's interesting. I mean, we crossed the 4,400 mark on the S&P. Our target is 4,250, but we have pointed out that some of our models have pointed to upside uh, to 4,600. We had a couple that were in the 4,400 area as well. So we feel like the move has been pretty rational. Um, but the particular model that tells me that we could go a little bit higher uh, than we've already seen is based on our valuation work and earnings forecast. So it's probably one of the more robust models, you know, and kind of dependable ones in our data set. Um, but again, I do think the sentiment indicators, which have really been something that have kept us on board with being constructive all year, um, they're starting to, to look at a point where if you're trying to make an intermediate term call on markets beyond, you know, just a month or two, uh, you start have to start baking some caution in. What's the earnings outlook look like for you heading into the second half, given that we are expecting that the Fed is going to keep rates higher for longer and perhaps notch things up even more uh, heading into the July meeting? We've got about a minute left. So, you know, I think that multiples are really the intersection uh, with rates themselves. Um, on the earnings themselves, I expect 213 on the year. And one of the things we're consistently surprised on is margins and how resilient they've been. And I, you know, my money would be that we're going to see that continue in this next reporting season. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 99.1 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.